Coming up, we hear a classic Upper House talk with culinary historian Adrian Miller on the surprising and interesting theological dimensions to soul food and barbecue after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan, your host, speaking to you from picturesque Madison, Wisconsin, here in June. Just love to be in Wisconsin at this time of year. It's sunny, beautiful weather most days, and uh, it's a little less busy with the school session out. So it's great to hang out at spots that might be really busy during the school year, but are now just right uh, throughout the summer. Well, if you know anything about Upper House, you know that we love hosting in-person events. And if you polled the people who come to our events, it's likely they'd single out food as one of the main draws. And we like it that way. Most of our events have at least drinks and snacks, and often we try to provide full meals for our guests. Now, while we're definitely proud of our consistent food offerings, it's just inevitable that some events stand out more than others in terms of the memorability of the food we offered. There's no event that does that more than the one that you're about to hear from February 2020 by culinary historian Adrian Miller. Adrian's specialty is soul food and barbecue, and his talk was structured to work through some of the staples of that cuisine and its significance to black history and church history. We took the opportunity to partner with a few local barbecue restaurants during the event to provide guests with a meal featuring many of the pieces of food that Adrian was talking about, or at least ones within the same types of food, of soul food and barbecue. It was a huge and delicious success, and we still remember the event fondly here years later. And while we can't reproduce the actual meal over the podcast, uh, unfortunately, the technology just isn't there yet, uh, we did want to bring new attention to Adrian's insightful and entertaining talk. In our event description back in 2020, we promised tongue-in-cheek that guests would see an integration of church and plate. And listening to this talk, I think you'll agree that Adrian does just that. His storytelling is full of poignant moments and fascinating historical nuggets that don't just sit there as interesting or entertaining, but also uh, bring in deep reflections about who God is, what the story the Bible tells is, and what the church is called to be. His talk should offer each of us this summer a deeper appreciation of the food we eat and how it too bears witness to the vast and meaning-laden tapestry of God's creation. So a bit more about Adrian. Adrian's a culinary historian, and he's currently the executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches. He's the author of three books, including Soul Food, The Surprising Stories of American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, which won the 2014 James Beer Foundation Book Award for Reference and Scholarship. Adrian's a graduate of Stanford University and Georgetown University Law School, 
After practicing law in Denver for several years, he became a special assistant to President Bill Clinton and the deputy director of the President's Initiative for One America. And he still lives in Colorado, as I mentioned, uh, as he leads the Colorado Council of Churches. Adrian's also the author of a more recent book, uh, Black Smoke, African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue from 2021. I haven't had a chance to read that. Sounds amazing and has very good reviews on Amazon. So go check that out as well. There's a link to that book in the show notes. So with that, we're excited to bring you a From the Vault Upwards podcast episode on a theology of soul food with Adrian Miller. Let's talk about kind of the backstory of soul food. Now, I grew up in in the African-American church, so I'm used to uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church, and so I'm used to call and response. So I'm just going to go through a typical soul food meal, and after I list an item, you can say amen, (laughs) preach that brother, you know, whatever, okay? All right, so... Entrees, the way and the way I wrote my book, I should just back up for a second. The way that I wrote my book is first I did research. I read 3,000 oral histories of formerly enslaved people looking for all references to food. I read about 500 cookbooks. I talked to hundreds of people about what they thought soul food is, where it's going. Uh, then I read thousands of newspaper articles because there are companies that are actually digitizing newspapers and magazine articles as far back as the 1600s. So once you figure out how people talked about food in that time, you can really get a, a rich uh, history. And then because I care about my subject so much, I decided to eat my way through the country. <laughs> so I went to 150 soul food restaurants in 35 cities in 15 states. I know you're surprised I'm still alive. I know, I know. And if you were my social media friend, I brought you along for the ride. So what I would do is I would go to a restaurant, take a picture of the restaurant's exterior, and then take a picture of my plate of food and describe what was uh, going on there. So I felt really blessed to win the James Beard Award um, after that. And um, one thing that I found out is that uh, soul food is a much more diverse uh, and complex story than what you may hear. Uh, You may probably hear that soul food is just the master's leftovers. It's the food that white people didn't want to eat. It's much more complex than that. So let me, uh, after getting all that information, I thought I was going to barely have enough to write one book. I had enough to write five. (laughs) So the book that I decided to write, this book on soul food, I created a representative soul food meal. I write a chapter about every part of the meal and I explain what that food item is, how it gets on the soul food plate, and what it means for the culture. And then every chapter ends with recipes. So I have traditional health conscious, and then fancy ones in case you want to show off as a cook. All right? So let's go through the meal. All right. Entrees. Fried chicken. Amen. All right. Catfish. Yes. All right. Chitlins. Uh. (laughs) All right. So these are people who've actually had chitlins. So chitlins, if you're not, uh, for the uninitiated, chitlins are pig intestines, either uh, stewed or fried. All right? Okay. Uh, uh, Side dishes. Greens. Yeah. So in soul food culture, the popular greens are collard, kale, mustard, turnip, and cabbage. So if you've been introduced to kale in the last five to 10 years, welcome to the party. We've been eating them for about 300. (laughs) Then I wrote about black eyed peas, mac and cheese, and then candy jams. Yes. All right. Then I wrote about cornbread and wrote a chapter about hot sauce because we put hot sauce on everything. And then I wrote a chapter on red drink because I believe red Kool-Aid is the official soul food drink. 
Now you have to understand in soul food culture, red is a color and a flavor. We don't call things cherry right. or strawberry or right. tropical punch. It's just red. red. Yes, sir. <laughs> now there is a generational shift happening. There's a lot of youngins that seem to like purple and blue. <laughs> and as I write in my book, I do believe the children are our future, that we should teach them well and let them lead the way, but not on Kool-Aid because they're messing it up. <laughs> And then for dessert, I couldn't settle on one, so I wrote about four. Pound cake, yes. peach cobbler, yes. banana pudding, yes. sweet potato pie. Yes. So that's the meal. All right. So let's go through soul food history. You probably have heard this term soul food. Where does it come from? Uh, a lot of people say it started in the 1960s where we had these strong expressions of black identity, black is beautiful, the black power movement. But actually, the first joining of the word soul and food in the English language goes back to Shakespeare. Does anybody know the name of Shakespeare's first play? Oh, yes, you know it? Oh, okay, okay. I was going to be shocked. The Two Gentlemen of Verona. And I know it was on the tip of your tongue, right? Okay. And in that play, uh, two uh, female characters, Julia and Lucetta, are talking about this hunky guy named Proteus. And Proteus walks behind a scene, and Julia says to Lucetta, Oh, knowest thou not that his looks are my soul's food? Pity the dearth that I've pined in by longing for that food so long a time. So that's the first time we get soul food in the English language. So just a historical footnote, not unusual for two girlfriends to get together and describe a guy as yummy, even in the late 16th century. But for the next 400 years, soul food actually has a religious connotation. It means doing anything to edify your spiritual life. So listening to a sermon uh, listening to hymns, singing hymns, and studying scriptures, okay? So soul food really doesn't have a physical food connotation for in its earliest iterations. It's really about spiritual life, doing anything to edify your spiritual life. So let's just quickly go through the history of soul food. Uh, if you're going to talk about African-American culture, most people of African heritage in the United States, we trace our roots to this part of West Africa. And I'm going to define West Africa as going from Senegal on the north all the way to Angola in the south. That's where a lot of enslaved people came. There were some taken from the east part of Africa, but most people come from the western portion. Within Africa, a typical meal is uh, some kind of savory soup, stew, or sauce that's either served alongside or on top of some starch. So it's really the starch that uh, grounds the meal. And within West Africa, there are different starch traditions. So if you are to actually start with Senegal and go all the way to kind of Sierra Leone along the coastline here, they had their own indigenous rice culture. So a lot of the dishes are rice-based. As you go further in the middle of the coastline here, this is more grains. So sorghum and millet and later cornmeal when maize gets introduced to this part of the world. And then also moving further down the coastline, it's root crops. So tropical yams, which are different than the yams in this country, because what we call yams in this country are dark flesh sweet potatoes, but tropical yams, cassava, and plantains. We actually had a very good African restaurant in uh, Colorado. So uh, this is fufu. So fufu has various forms. This is a pounded yam fufu. So that tropical root is pounded to the point where it has almost the consistency of mashed potatoes. And then you have tilapia fish steaks in the middle as the protein. And then this is a, a stew uh, or sauce of spinach, chilies, and tomatoes. So the idea is you break off a little bit of the fufu, you get some of that fish and that sauce, and you scoop it and eat it in one fell swoop. Uh, delicious stuff. But the restaurant did not last long, and I think it had something to do with the name. It was called The Palace, Nigerian Food and Philly Cheesesteaks. <laughs> it's 
didn't work out. All right. So uh, this is a representation of the movement of enslaved people across the Atlantic, often called the Middle Passage. The journey was anywhere from 10 weeks to 12 weeks, depending on where you were leaving in West Africa and where you were disembarking in the Americas. An estimated 10 to 25 million enslaved Africans uh, made this journey. Uh, we don't know for sure because records weren't accurately kept. Uh, during the early years of the slave trade, uh, essentially, uh, during the whole slave trade, Africans were kept below deck and only allowed to come up twice a day for bathing, exercise, and eating. And that's when a lot of the slave rebellions happened. In the early years of the slave trade, uh, the Africans were basically fed uh, rotting European food. And so there was high mortality rates. And for the slavers, it was all an economic calculation. They just wanted to make enough money by disembarking and unloading enough of their human cargo in the Americas. So what they did is they started feeding the enslaved below deck the foods that they were used to in wherever they came from in West Africa. So if you knew that you had people from Senegal and Gambia below deck, you started feeding them rice dishes and that improved the mortality rates. The key thing to understand here is that most of the people, enslaved uh, Africans who came across the Atlantic, arrive in points south of British North America. So Caribbean, Latin America, South America. That's why I argue in my book that what we call soul food is really a European meal with West African influences. When you eat with someone of African heritage in the Caribbean, Latin America, or South America, it's usually an African meal with European influences because of the, power, uh, the population and power dynamic and autonomy that these people had over their food. Here's just a, a newspaper ad from a uh, Charleston newspaper, May 1st, 1769. I just show you this because it shows you that slavers were very cognizant of where they were getting people uh, from. So this talks about people coming from rice country, which would have been that Senegal and Gambia area I mentioned earlier. So fast forward as uh, enslaved, as slavery takes root in what would become the United States in the colonies, the typical way that the enslaved people were fed is once a week, they got a controlled amount of food called rations. And those rations would be five pounds of some starch. It, could, it was typically cornmeal because that was the easiest thing to, to grow, but it could be cornmeal, rice, or sweet potato. And then they would get a couple of pounds of meat and that meat could be any smoked, salted, or dried food. Typically, it was pork because pork was the easiest thing to raise, but it could be fish or beef, and then a jug of molasses. So the enslaved had to figure out how to supplement their diet by gardening, fishing, hunting, and foraging. Okay? Um, but what we see over time is we see a replication of West African foodways in the Americas. So uh, Essentially, people that were from Gambia and Senegal, they started asking for rice rations instead of cornmeal. If they were from the places in the middle, uh, which was more grain country, uh, cultures, then uh, the cornmeal was fine. And then people from the root crop cultures of the South started asking for sweet potatoes as their main starch. So we start to see a replication of West African food waste. Here's an example of a plantation uh, schematic. This was uh, from a plantation outside of Charleston. So the commodity crop, cotton, indigo, tobacco, would have been uh, grown in a field beyond the pasture. It's kind of an open area. But in the middle here, those numbers were actually the dwellings of the enslaved. But the thing to really uh, note here is below it says Negro gardens and poultry grounds. So one of the untold stories of slavery is that many, in many cases, the enslaved were allowed to grow their own food and raise their own animals. And if you look at what people were eating during that time, it was very close to what we call vegan today. 
because it was seasonal vegetables, they had water. Meat was not an entree, it was really just to season the vegetables, which was another culinary signature from West Africa. And in that case in West Africa, instead of pork being used, fish or other things were done to season the vegetables. So keep that in mind. Uh, so the things that we think about with soul food, like fried chicken, the glorious cakes and other things, that was special occasion food. That was things that people only got on the weekends when the work schedule slowed or on Christmas and New Year's. So that was celebration food. So just hold that for a moment. We're going to come back to that. All right, let's talk about barbecue. This is a brisket sandwich from a place I love in Denver called Owl Bear, like hoo hoo, growl, growl, all put together. It's a Dungeons and Dragons term, um, but this was, just love this sandwich. So the early roots of barbecue. So this is uh, when essentially uh, Columbus and other early explorers encounter barbecue. And essentially barbecue in its earliest form was just about preserving food. It was not about immediate feasting. So they were smoking food for later use. And uh, typically <laughs> the word barbecue is an approximation of the indigenous term for this raised platform. So the earliest word barbecue was not for the food. It was just for the platform. And then later it becomes applied to the cooking method and the food and the social events. All right. Now, um, the fire, you know, this, this was basically somebody back in Europe hearing about barbecue and trying to draw it. This is not an actual eyewitness account because this fire would not be blazing like this. <laughs> But it was more like this. So this is from the 1770s. Now, this was actually drawn by somebody uh, named John White, who was in the Virginias. One story you hear about barbecue is that it started in the Caribbean, where Columbus and others first observed, observed it, and then enslaved people and others brought it to the mainland U.S. What my research has uncovered is that actually there were various smoking traditions already happening in the mainland uh, and the mainland in the, in the what would become the United States. So um, it's the Caribbean importation theory really doesn't hold up. Uh, indigenous people all throughout the Americas were doing some type of smoking. So here's the, the various forms. So we have the raised platform, which is what Columbus first saw. And then we have spit cooking, which was familiar to Europeans. Here they would have an improvised uh, kind of wood fork sticks and then they would stick another stick through whatever protein or meat they were going to use and just uh, occasionally turn it. Then we have angled sticks. This was more common in the Pacific Northwest. So essentially, you have salmon that's butterflied and then put on kind of a angled platform. And they would tilt it towards the fire and back just to cook it and turn it to get smoke flavor and to cook it evenly. Then there's the trench. So essentially, somebody would dig a long trench. It would be about three feet wide maybe about three feet deep, and then it could be as long as it may, depending on how many animals you wanted to cook. And then there's something called an earth oven, which you see throughout the Americas in the Pacific. And essentially, this is below ground. So you have, uh, you dig whatever hole you want to have, and then you put your full fuel source on the bottom, well, usually hardwood that's burned down. Then you have a layer of vegetation protecting that, and then you have your meat, and then another layer of vegetation, and then you bury it, and you cover it up with dirt. So you would start this fire, put the meat in and just bury it. And then you would come back the next morning and eat that food. Of all of these, that trench method, that's what becomes Southern pit barbecue. So all of these other methods are not really called barbecue in its earliest iteration. All right. So let's fast forward to talk about the religious life of the enslaved. Uh, for a lot of slavers, they had mixed feelings about proselytizing to their enslaved because if people became Christians, then it's harder to it's a harder rationale to enslave them. And so they decided not to proselytize. It was a, it was a mixed bag uh, to the extent that African-Americans, enslaved African-Americans did get 
Christianity, they often were just given sermons that essentially supported slavery. So the passages that talked about servants and slaves obey your masters, that's all the sermon would be. It was something to reinforce the slave regime. Now, in terms of practicing uh, religion, uh, a lot of times the enslaved were forbidden to have their own unfettered worship. And so you heard the expression steal away. Often the enslaved had to go into the woods or something to uh, express their own religious, uh, to have their own religious expression. In terms of churches, though, it was often a very segregated experience. So they would not be able to take sacraments with whites. They couldn't sit in the same sections of white. It was a segregated experience. So the contrast to this were the camp meetings that started to develop in the late 18th century and in the 19th century. And these camp meetings were uh, extraordinary events. Now, I think my research is showing that pastors got this idea from politicians because politicians figured out that the way to get votes was to have these massive barbecues, right? And so pastors said, hey, that might be a good way to uh, get converts for my own uh, congregation. And so you would start to see a lot of these camp meetings being held throughout the South. And the thing that was different is that a lot of enslaved African-Americans were allowed to go to the camp meetings, but their worship and their social interactions were not as regulated as they were in the indoor spaces. So the theology of this is an idea of radical hospitality. It's the idea that I see the divine in you. I want you to come join us to be in this space, but I also want to be with you. So as enslaved people, they got to see the possibility of what life outside of slavery might be like in these outdoor uh, camp meetings. And typically it was soul food and barbecue that was made at these events. Uh, So after emancipation, the independent African-American church emerges. It's one of the it really was the social center for life in the uh, rural countryside, especially because of the geographic isolation. And what you see is that uh, African-Americans are really gravitating to the church. And a lot of church life was not only having church and worshiping, but it was also these social uh, events. And so typically people would be cooking fried chicken or barbecue as the sermon is going. And the pastor, if they're on cue, they're actually weaving that soul food into their sermons. Uh, there's, a, there's quite a few mentions of sermons where they talk of, describe heaven in terms of soul food and barbecue. Uh, they would talk about heaven has pigs already running around barbecue with forks in their backs. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Uh, and so barbecue takes on its own vibe in the 1800s. And what we see emerging... Uh, from slavery is that we have a lot of barbecue experts who are African-Americans because barbecue back then was whole animal cooking and it involved a lot of hard work because essentially somebody had to chop down the trees to create all that wood that would be used for the barbecue. Somebody had to dig those trenches. Somebody had to slaughter the animals and butcher them. And then somebody had to do the hard labor of watching that animal cook. And what they would do is they would have, imagine like a pig carcass that's butterflied. They would stick poles through it and then periodically somebody had to flip for even cooking. Very hard work. And so that meant enslaved Africans and then later free African-Americans were doing that work. So coming out of slavery, African-Americans were barbecue's earliest ambassadors. And so they were on trains, boats and stagecoaches around the country to bring the authentic Southern pit barbecue experience. One of my favorite stories is there was a guy named Father Cummings in Boston who in late in the early 1890s, he gets a directive from the Catholic church saying, hey, we want you to build a new church. So what he does 
in order to fundraise is he brings an African-American named Charles Allen from Lexington, Virginia, up to Boston every August to do a big Southern barbecue, which was a novelty to a lot of Bostonians at that time. So he figured out that barbecue can attract a crowd and raise some money. Okay, after the Great Migration, we see um, during the Great Migration, which lasted from the early 1900s as well into the 1970s, we see millions of African-Americans leaving the South for other parts of the country, seeking better opportunity. And often the church played an important role when they landed in the new spot, especially if they were going to areas of the country that had pre-existing black populations. Um, the church played an important role in, in basically helping people ease the transition from rural life to city life and also providing food. In a lot of situations in the 1920s, especially when people arrived in urban areas, they actually didn't have um, living spaces that would allow them to cook their own food. Sometimes you had to pay extra to have something called kitchen privileges. So the black church, in terms of feeding people during the weeks, many black churches actually ran restaurants, street vendors and others were really important to providing food. Oh, and the other thing point I want to make is when you think about the great migration, it's really uh, the same function in terms of food as immigrants. Now think about any immigrant culture, what we think about their food. It's usually what we've experienced in restaurants or seen on TV and other things. And usually that is the special occasion food of the old country. Because if you're a restaurateur, you don't want to show off the everyday stuff of your culture, right? You want to show off the very best. The same thing was happening with soul food. Soul food is a celebration food of the old South and the rural South. So if you think about that, celebration food is really not supposed to be eaten every day. It's only supposed to eat, be eaten every once in a while. So we're, I know. You may think we have a constitutional right to fried chicken, but, you know, actually, <laughs> I know. But the, take example of fried chicken. So in African-American culture, fried chicken is called the gospel bird or Sunday cluck. So that just shows you the prominence it had in the culture. But it was something that people ate every once in a while, and at most just once a week. But now we live in a culture where you could have fried chicken anytime you want to, almost any day. So if soul food is celebration food and we're eating it out of context more regularly than it should be, it's going to have consequences for your body. And I think that's why soul food gets this bad rap about health consequences. But the problem is we're the ones eating it out of context. All right. OK, so uh, I talked a little bit about this, the black church as a dining option. So, again, you know, important that churches were played a vital role in feeding the new immigrants as they arrived in places. Uh, and that was very meaningful to those to those people coming to those communities. Uh, a couple of preachers were very savvy at using this, uh, meeting the need of hunger and also building their congregations. So one person was a guy named Father Divine. Has anybody ever heard of Father Divine? OK, so Father Divine, his real name is George Baker. He shows up in he's from South Carolina. He shows up in uh Long Island, New York, around 1990. And for whatever reason, he just starts telling people he's the son of God or he's God incarnate. Sorry, he's God incarnate. And people believed him. And one reason he was able to kind of uh, create this image is that he used food. So he would essentially have these gargantuan banquets of all kinds of food, salt, soul food and barbecue. And he would offer it for a very cheap price. I'm fascinated by this. I wonder how he was able to finance all that. But he established that reputation for feeding the hungry uh, by offering very expensive meals for a very cheap price. Uh, and in fact, he often called his restaurants heavens and they offered glorified chicken. All right. So very savvy. Another person that did this was uh, Bishop Charles Daddy Grace started his own denomination 
And again, a lot of the growth of his church was through having meals. In fact, there are several restaurants around the country uh, operated in this denomination. It's called the United House of Prayer for All People. And throughout the South and even some places outside the South, they have uh, operating restaurants, usually just for lunch. Uh, One place is in Washington, D.C. It's called Saints Paradise Cafe. So you can see just like the glorious cakes and all this stuff. And it's, it's, usually it's a buffet setup. And uh, yeah, those sisters do it right. I can just tell you. <laughs> so the camp meetings still uh, happen in the 20th century, but they, they're really on the decline. In the 19th century, camp meetings could get to, you know, 15,000, uh, 20,000 people. Um, but they became smaller in the 19th century. And I think that's because barbecue was changing. It was moving from being whole animal cooking to cooking individual parts. And so barbecue started to downscale in the 20th century. But still, we had barbecue social events with church and operated very much like soul food. So uh, soul food, though, as a term, starts to change in the 1940s and late 1950s. Essentially, you've got these disgruntled African-American jazz artists, and they're disgruntled because they believe that white jazz artists were making the most money and getting the most publicity from jazz, which they thought was a genre they had created. So they wanted to take the music to a place where they thought white musicians could not mimic the sound. And that was the sound of the black church in the rural South. So in the late 1940s and early 1950s, gospel tinge jazz was started to be called soul and funky. So it was soul music first, and then it gets slapped on other aspects of barbecue culture, of black culture. So it was soul music, soul brothers, soul sister, soul food. Um, The interesting thing about this is uh, our food could have been called funky food, right? But that's not very appetizing. (laughs) Soul is the one that sticks. Now, what does happen in the 1960s is soul as a term gets racialized and radicalized. So black power movement uh, folks were trying to figure out how do we connect all of these African-Americans across the country that are having disparate experiences of oppression. So they could relate to what was happening in the rural South. But what was happening in the cities outside the South was different. And so they often use culture. And food was a great connector. There was actually a manifesto that was leaked to the New York Times that said that white people can't understand things like ham hocks, cornbread, and all these soul food items. Now, this was news to white Southerners because they've been eating the same food for about 200 years, right? But at that time, soul becomes black and Southern becomes white. And we're living with that legacy today. If I were to ask you, name somebody on TV strongly associated with soul food, who would you say? Paula Dean? Okay. All right. Now, if I said name somebody on TV associated with Southern, uh, Southern food, you'd probably say Paula Dean, her sons, Trisha. There's a lot, much longer list. So one of the vibrant discussions right now in these circles is this idea of culinary justice. It's the idea of trying to bring together folks who had been deemed to have separate uh, identities within this type of cooking and to acknowledge African-American contributions to uh, Southern cooking. It's called culinary justice. Barbecue in the 20th century uh, has different functions. So the church social, I'm sure you all are familiar with this. This is from my own church in a park. So we would every, every year we would get together and, you know, a lot of, a lot of competitive talk about who could grill the best. In fact, with the council of churches, I'm thinking about having a barbecue competition with pastors. I want to, yeah, I want to call it the burnt offering invitational. <laughs> also fundraisers. This was a place, this, this was a church just right on the sidewalk. What's that? Still. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks for giving me a heads up, bro. I appreciate that. <laughs> also, fundraisers. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but there's a, there are actually barbecue churches. So these are churches that started out selling barbecue, and they're so strong of it with their identity 
but they're now known for that. So one of these places was New Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Huntsville, Texas. And the story goes is that uh, they were doing some repairs to the small church. And one of the sisters got out there and started barbecuing. And that's another thing to note. In African-American barbecue circles, it's not male-dominated. Black women have been in the barbecue game from the earliest days. In fact, in my forthcoming book, I have the story of an enslaved woman in Arkansas in the 1840s who was actually known for barbecue, and she made so much money doing barbecue that she bought her own freedom. So that's one story. So, yeah, black women have been grilling it for themselves. So, <laughs> so um The sister started making barbecue just to feed the people doing the renovation work at the church. And then people would start coming by and they'd say, oh, y'all are selling barbecue. Can I get some? She's like, no, no, it's for the church. So many people came by that they actually started selling barbecue and they made so much money that they completely renovated the church and they had a thriving barbecue business. But this place closed uh, last November. So, yeah, it was sad. And um, one thing I'm exploring in my book is this connection between barbecue and preachers. There's a lot of people that are called to preach the word of God and smoke meat. I'm trying to figure out what that's all about. Now, I've had my own struggles um, in my Bible study just because of my love of barbecue. Um, You know, every time I see the word burnt offering in scripture, my mind starts to wonder, wander, you know, Um, when Moses encountered the burning bush, I wondered, did it smell like hickory? Oh, yeah. When Ezekiel saw that valley of dry bones, did they look like spare ribs? You know, that kind of thing. I know I need counseling. I need Jesus, that's for sure. So one, one, one person I met is Jim Davis of Tyler, Texas. Uh, he runs a grocery store and barbecue business. When you go in, there's a big cross right on the wall, a lot of religious iconography. Um, so it, it, this was really just to uh, support his own um, lifestyle because a lot of African-American preachers are bivo- uh, bivocational. So they need to have a second source of income. John Rivers is interesting because he is actually using barbecue as a ministry. So he's trying to figure out like how to feed his community and bring more people to Christ through barbecue. So interesting figures. All right, let's just go through the soul food meal really quickly. As I talked earlier, uh, chicken is a part. It can either be fried or smothered. Oh, I'm sorry. These are highlights from my national eating tour. Okay. Uh, so if you're not familiar with smothered chicken, it's just really just flouring the chicken and then um, lightly searing it in some grease and then braising it in gravy until it falls apart. This is from Deborah's Kitchen in Philadelphia. Um, This is the kind of fried chicken I like. It was a thin, well-seasoned kind of papery crust that has a nice crunch and then really juicy meat underneath after you bite into it. I just love that. Uh, Fried fish. Catfish is the most popular, um, but any fried fish will do. This is from Mittendorf's, a place outside of New Orleans. The interesting thing about catfish is that the reason why it's so iconic is it was just the easiest thing to raise. Uh, In the 1960s, there was a Basically, the cotton industry went on, fell on hard times. So a lot of black cotton farmers just flooded their fields and started raising catfish. But now the catfish industry is having a tough time. So what you're seeing are a lot of restaurants that are substituting with Vietnamese catfish called Basa Swai, or they're doing tilapia. So you're just not seeing as much catfish because sometimes even in Denver, catfish is more expensive than salmon. It's like 10, nine to $10 a pound. Um, yeah, you don't think of that. You think of catfish as a really cheap fish. Uh, variety meats. So soul food is known for variety meats. So that would be like the ham hocks, the oxtails, the pig's feet, those kind of things. The interesting thing that's happening now is now that soul food has been um, discovered and whole animal cooking has been discovered, you're finding, you're finding these variety meats showing up on um, white tablecloth restaurants. So let's just take pig feeds, for example. You know, if you went to Adrian's soul food joint, you might have pig's feet. Be probably delicious. But if you go to Adrian's fine dining spot, let's just call it Shea Adrian. I would call those pig's feet trotters. 
right? And you're finding people, I've even seen um, this on TV and written in statements. People say, oh, the chef is just doing amazing things, honoring the whole animal with this cooking, taking us to places we've never been before with food. And you're paying $30 for something that's, you know, only six. (laughs) Yeah, it has been around forever. Yep. Chitlins. Now, these are the intestines. I only have chitlins twice a year. Thanksgiving and New Year's, not for everybody. I usually have them stewed. Uh, greens and black eyed peas. So this is from one of my favorite places. It's called Bully Soul Food in Jackson, Mississippi. You know about bullies? Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I love this place. So this is actually taken off the main dining room. So in bullies, while you're eating your food, periodically somebody will come out and strip greens and peel sweet potatoes. So that's kind of the fresh food you're getting. Black eyed peas. This is from Marcus Samuelson's place in uh, Harlem called Red Rooster. He's a famous uh, Food Network chef. Now, does anybody know why I would have greens and black eyed peas on the same slide? New Year's. Okay, what's the tradition? Black eyed peas. Yeah, but black eyed peas for? For coins and good luck, right? And then the, the greens for? Folly money. Okay, so now you, you're one of the few people who mentioned coins. Do you come from a place where they put a dime in the pot, and if you get that dime in your portion, you're extra lucky? Okay, all right. Some people do that. I think that's dangerous, but... And uh, it's kind of like the Christ cake, you know, the, the king cake with the baby Jesus in it. Yeah. But the other thing that bothers me about that tradition is by now they should have adjusted for inflation. It should be a quarter <laughs> at least. Candy jams. Candy jams are either boiled or baked. Sweet potatoes braised in a very sweet gravy. Macaroni and cheese. Now, I wasn't going to include macaroni and cheese in my book, but so many black friends of mine threatened to slap me upside my head <laughs> that I succumbed to peer pressure. But the earliest recipe for mac and cheese actually goes back to the 1300s. In the go-to cookbook for Queen Elizabeth I and Richard II, they have a macaroni and cheese recipe. Just the pasta, butter, Parmesan cheese. Over time, the cream and other elements get added. And so wealthy Americans who went to Europe got introduced to this dish, people like Thomas Jefferson, then they would bring it back to the American South. And so enslaved cooks started making this dish. So that's how it gets into uh, African-American cooking. Uh, Cornbread. So there are a lot of wheat breads in uh, African-American cooking, but cornbreads, I think, are the most emblematic. These are cornbread muffins served at an Asian-American soul food joint in San Francisco called the Hard Knocks Cafe. Really good stuff. Yeah. When I make cornbread, I usually make a buttermilk cornbread in a cast iron skillet. So you're going to get a nice wedge from me. So uh, we talked about hot sauce. I'm more of a fan of kind of the thick, thicker reddish hot sauce like Louisiana brand or Frank's. I'm not a big fan of Tabasco just doesn't have enough kick for me. Is there anybody who's hardcore about Tabasco here? Okay, you usually don't find those people. All right. Uh, One thing you see on the East Coast is pepper vinegar, which is a renewable resource. So what you would do is you get your container, you put your chilies in there and just pour vinegar in there and just let it steep until it got to the level of spice that you wanted. You would put it on your food. And then when you ran out, you just add more vinegar. Yep. But this was healthcare. Uh, what they found in the 1840s and 50s is that there were epidemics of cholera that were going through, the, ravaging the South. And planters were experimenting, and they figured out that if they added chilies to the diet of their enslaved, the incidence of cholera, cholera plummeted. Uh, in the late 1700s, if you had strep throat, doctors would give you a, a prescription for a capsicum gargle. Capsicum is the botanical name for chilies, and essentially it would mash up those chilies and add vinegar, and then you would gargle with that. Turn around any bottle of hot sauce, the main ingredients, chilies and vinegars and spices. So basically they were prescribing a, a hot sauce gargle. Uh, we've talked about red drinks. There are two ancestral red drinks that you probably have had and you didn't even know it. One is cola. 
So cola is native to West Africa. There are some whitish nuts, but there are a lot of red nuts. And as a hospitality drink, if you came to somebody's house, they would give you a red cola nut tea. So you get water, drop the cola nuts in there, and sweeten it to taste. The other one is hibiscus. Uh, hibiscus is a flower, a plant native to West Africa. The flower is used to make an herbal tea there as well. Same formula. It comes across the Atlantic, takes root in Jamaica, where it's called sorrel. Uh, the, it's a Christmas time drink because that's when the flower blooms. And then it made its way around Latin America. So if you go to a taqueria and you have agua de Jamaica, Jamaica water, you're drinking a riff off a West African drink. Sweet tea. I put this on there because a lot of people, a lot of people like to fight with me when I'm talking about a soul food menu. They're like, well, why don't you include sweet tea? I just don't think sweet tea is part of soul food. Once you get outside of the South, you really don't see sweet tea in soul food restaurants. It's really more in the South. Now, uh, one thing I will observe is I think sweet tea is going through a transition where it's actually going to lose its Southern identity in about 10 years or so. Because McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, all of these restaurants now are serving sweet tea. And if you think I'm crazy, the same thing happened to Coca-Cola. 100 years ago, people thought of Coca-Cola as a Southern drink, especially from Georgia. But as Coca-Cola went worldwide, no one thinks of it that way. And I think sweet tea is going to go through that same transformation. Soul food desserts. One thing you would not expect to hear about soul food is that most soul food desserts are riffs off old British desserts. The sweet potato pie has the same ingredients and spicing as a carrot pie. And a carrot pie, a carrot is one of the sweetest vegetables. So I, what I think happened is some cook decided to swap out one sweet orange root crop for another. And we get sweet potato pie. Peach cobbler shows up in the mid 1800s. The way that they make Peach cobbler in the early days is you would have a big cast iron vessel. You would put your pit, your peaches in their hole with the pits, add your sugar and other spices, and then you would cover it with leftover biscuit dough, put an iron cast iron lid on that. So you would have a fire underneath, and then you would take coals from another fire and put that on top. That's how you cook that top layer. The look of that resembled cobblestones of a street. So I think that's where the peach cobbler comes out. Again, I think this recipe is dangerous because you have the pits in the cobbler. But by the late 1800s, pits start coming out of the recipe. And that's when you start to see vanilla and almond extract getting added. So I think that's a cook's attempt to uh, approximate the taste that was left by the pits. Banana pudding. Okay, I am bearing my soul here. This is a banana pudding that I made. And you can tell that my meringue game is not tight. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm working on it. Um, but banana pudding is a riff off a British dessert called a trifle. A trifle had a bread element and a cream element. So the bread is vanilla wafer cookies, and the cream is that custard or jello pudding that you uh, make with it. And this was a really expensive dessert when it was introduced in the 1800s because bananas were imported and very, very expensive. Okay, pound cake. Um, ignore the rest of this here. I was at an all-you-can-eat buffet in um, Cleveland, Mississippi. They were about to close, so that's why I got every dessert I could. Pound cake, long-time British dessert, earliest recipes, pound of sugar, pound of butter, pound of flour. I find that soul food cooks are most protective of their soul food, um, of their pound cake recipes. And I think because of its simplicity, you can show off your virtuosity and your individuality, individuality as a cook. Okay, soul food's denomination. These are just really cold current trends. So in addition to do uh, traditional soul food, you've got down-home healthy. That's just swapping out the fat, the sugar, the butter, and all that stuff for healthier ingredients. This is a popular recipe in my book. This is Creole broiled catfish. So the way you would make this is you get your catfish filet, rub it with olive oil, put on your favorite Cajun or Creole spice, broil it for seven minutes, and then serve it. People go nuts for this. Um, so that's just one example. This is a recipe from an ex-girlfriend. So I'm going to pause and offer a pro tip. Uh, if you are dating or married to someone who's a good cook, do what you can to stay with that person. <laughs> but if you notice that the relationship's getting rocky, I can tell you from personal experience, it's a lot easier to get the recipes before you break up. <laughs> 
Pro tip. <laughs> Upscale soul food is the exact opposite, right? So you would use uh, like duck fat or saffron or exotic ingredients, heirloom vegetables and uh, heritage meat. Um, this is a dish called Country Captain, which is a curry dish out of Georgia. So this is just an example. Pretty presentation, all that kind of stuff. Vegan. So the hottest trend in soul food right now is vegan. Now, you may think that's an oxymoron, but remember what I said earlier. If you look at what the enslaved were actually eating, it's close to what we call vegan today. This is a place called Soli Vegan in Oakland, California. Moving from left to right, ladies and gentlemen, southern fried tofu, <laughs> vegan mac and cheese, vegan collard greens. Tofu was shaped to look like fried chicken. It tasted a lot like catfish to me. Not bad. The vegan mac and cheese I wasn't feeling because if you know vegan, no animal products, right? So no dairy. So this vegan mac and cheese was basically cooked like stuffed tortellini. It was kind of hard in the middle, not creamy. So I just wasn't feeling it. Collard greens were as good as any. Because if you know how to season, you can make collard greens or any kind of greens in a way that you don't even miss the meat. Uh, there's also fusion going on. So you're starting to see soul food mixed in with other uh, ethnic cuisines. So we have collard green quesadillas. This is a place in Atlanta that's called the Blacksican. Not my name, that's his. <laughs> and then the other trend you're seeing a lot is soul food egg rolls called soul rolls. So essentially they're taking the egg, egg, uh, the, you know, the egg roll wrapper and they're just putting soul food ingredients in it and frying it. Okay, let's go through barbecue real quick. So uh, Eastern North Carolina is pretty much pork shoulders uh, cooked in, uh, throughout the cooking process, basted in vinegar and red pepper. And so that's really gives you a, a feel for that barbecue. If Eastern North Carolina barbecue is made well, you don't even notice the vinegar. It actually is subtle and it adds a depth of flavor to the barbecue. I think a lot of people have an attitude about North Carolina barbecue because there's so many people who make it poorly. They just cook it one way and they douse it with vinegar. They just drown it with vinegar and they say this is North Carolina barbecue. Another style is Lessing style. And this is moving more westward. And the, the marked difference is it's also uh, pork shoulders as well over here. And we got hush puppies, fries, and then this is a barbecue slaw. Uh, so the, the big difference is the introduction of tomatoes. So when Eastern North Carolina um, barbecue takes root, people thought tomatoes were poisonous because they're part of the nightshade family. So you're seeing the gradual adoption of tomatoes into the, uh, into the diet. Uh, South Carolina is no, no, known more for uh, whole hog cooking, but you can see the variation in just sauces just within one state. Uh, so this is more eastern North Carolina, mustard, there's various theories as to why mustard shows up, and it's probably because of the German immigrants that settled in the area. You see ketchup and tomato here as part of the sauces. But again, they're known for uh, whole hog cooking, and so uh, typically you're getting just a plate with various parts of the animal. This is a place called Scott's Barbecue in Hemingway, uh, South Carolina. Or you might get invited to a pig picking where they will butterfly uh, a hog and then cook it, and then you just get to go up and pick what you want. Uh, Memphis is known for a lot of things. So this is a place called Payne's. This is a chopped pork sandwich with a mustard slaw. I'm convinced that once we get to heaven, we will be fed this on a regular basis. <laughs> also known for dry ribs, the rendezvous, which is really just ribs with Greek seasoning on it, but that's been called a, a barbecue style. Another glorious thing is barbecue spaghetti. If you've never had barbecue spaghetti, essentially it's pasta, and then uh, barbecue sauce instead of marinara, and then grilled meat. Doesn't that sound awesome? Uh, then also barbecue bologna. bologna. Oh, so here's how you do the barbecue bologna. You get a tube of bologna, you slit it, you stab it to make slits, put it on the smoker for a few hours, take it off, and when somebody orders, they cut, a, depending on the place, an inch to a half an inch thick slice, they put it on the grill to give it some char, 
White bread, bologna, slaw, barbecue sauce, white bread, awesome. Kentucky is known for its pork, or sorry, its lamb, barbecue, mutton. So this is a famous place called the Moonlight Inn. So they have a mutton tradition with a Worcestershire barbecue dip that's served alongside it. Then they have a Western style that's pretty reminiscent of other parts of the country. It's gonna be chopped pork. And then they also have a unique tradition called pork steaks, which is essentially taking a pork shoulder, but slicing it vertically with the bone in it as well. Um, doing a quick sear and cooking it and then um, basting it with a very spicy barbecue sauce. Kansas City, this is my favorite barbecue tradition. So pork sport, spare ribs, that's my thing. That's the thing that I love the most. That's what I judge barbecue uh, places by is how they make their uh, spare ribs. One of my favorite restaurants is this place called LC's Barbecue, and they are known for making sliced pork as well as burnt ends. If you don't know about burnt ends, burnt ends are the singed part of the brisket, right? And in Kansas City, they serve fries with everything. <laughs> Texas is known for very uh, multiple styles. So this is a place called Black's Barbecue. Um, and I point out Black's in Lockhart because they extended uh, radical hospitality. In the 1950s, they actually started letting African-Americans eat in the restaurant instead of segregating it. And they did it very quietly. Some people protested, but most people went along with it. And they, they said it was the right thing to do. So I like showing that. But they're known for smoking meat indirectly. So here's the brisket. Sausages are part of the tradition, chicken and pork. Uh, another part is East Texas, which you don't probably hear about. This is Robert Patillo, who's the uh, great-grandson of the founder. This is a barbecue joint that was started in 1912. And they're known for beef link sausages. So kind of a very coarsely ground piece of beef that uh, has uh, a little greasy, but very smoked and very, very good. Uh, in Southeast Texas is more a combination of Creole and Southern barbecue. So this would be in Houston. So you've got the dirty rice, the ribs, the turkey, and the greens here. Okay. And then South Texas also has Latinx traditions. So this is cabeza, cow's head, cabrito, which is goat. And usually these are cooked below ground. And just very quickly, some other styles in Santa Maria, California, they have a tri-tip tradition. This is an old photo from the 1940s of that angled barbecue, was salmon barbecue that I showed you earlier. Chicago is known for rib tips and fries. St. Louis, they have something called snoots, uh, another name for snouts. So they take the very end of the pig's nose, smoke that, and uh, serve that up with barbecue sauce. Uh, and then the, the biggest trend right now in barbecue, other than Texas gaining more popularity, is barbecue's attempt to get healthier. So one thing you're seeing in a lot of places is jackfruit. Jackfruit is an Asian fruit, and if somebody knows what they're doing, they can make jackfruit in a way that resembles pork, um, the pulled pork of eastern North Carolina. So you're starting to see that a lot more. And I've, I've had it. Um, in fact, there was a place in Denver, where I, uh, Boulder, sorry, Colorado, that had it, and when I first experienced it, the guy told me a story that was an incredible sales pitch. Right down the street from his restaurant, there was a vegan convention. And they all came to this barbecue spot. And they just said, well, what do you have that's not meat? He said, well, I have this jackfruit. Um, his, fruit, or his food was so convincing that vegans were sending it back, saying that we didn't want meat. <laughs> so I thought that was an incredible sales pitch. And so I, I, it was good. Um, and then one of the things that I'll, second to last slide, is I'll talk about the black church movement. And more and more pastors in the black church at least, are seeing food as a way to have a new ministry. So part of it, and there's, there's multiple ministries. So one is food justice. The idea is how can they get healthy food to uh, people in places that normally don't get that? Uh, so you have churches not only having a food bank ministry, but they're pairing up with food rescue groups to get the food to sick and shut-ins. So we have a vibrant uh, system in Denver. We actually have people that get on bicycles and they will go to food banks and churches and deliver it 
the people that can't get out of their houses. They're working with farmers markets so that they will accept food stamps and other benefits. Uh, and then a lot of pastors are looking at people in their congregation and they're seeing how unhealthy they are. And they're trying to figure out how can the church, which has really been uh, the place to get this fantastic food um, and rich food and the celebration food, how can the church do things differently? Believe it or not, there's a pastor in northern Mississippi, Herndon, Mississippi, who banned fried chicken at his church. This guy still has his job and he's still alive. So it is possible. And then I want to last end by talking about barbecue and soul food in heaven. Now, you may not know this, but periodically there's a group of people that are living on a volcano in Hawaii. The reason why they're living on this volcano is because the soil is very similar to the soil on Mars. So they're trying to figure out if there's a chance for a, a, for a people mission to Mars. So these people live in this capsule. While they're in the capsule, they do various things. But when they leave the capsule, they have to put on a spaceship or a spacesuit because they just want to essentially figure out um, the psychology of all that. But when you look at what they're uh, experimenting with food wise, a lot of it is going to is soul food. So they're experimenting with sweet potatoes, greens, hibiscus and okra. The reason why any trip to Mars one one way, depending on when you leave Earth, is going to be a year to a year and a half long. So they can never put enough uh, food on the spaceship to uh, make it that one-way journey. So they're going to have to figure out how to grow things along the way. Um, barbecue is a popular item on the spaceship, but they have to cook it ahead of time. So that's one thing they're going to have to make on Earth because you really can't barbecue in a closed environment like that. So I had an event in Houston, and Johnson Space Control is in Houston is where they do a lot of the food experimentation. So I just called them up one time, and I said, hey, I'm an author. I wrote about soul food. I'd love to talk to you about soul food in space. They didn't hang up. They said, hey, yeah, come on, we'll talk to you. So I went there and it was a glorious experience. And I figured out um, a couple of things. These couple of things are a little bit negative because they're non-starters in space. So one is cornbread. Does anybody know why cornbread would be a non-starter in space? What does cornbread do? It falls apart. It crumbles. So in a zero gravity environment, you're going to have crumbs everywhere. Your spaceship is going to be straight nasty. The other one is chitlins because you can't roll down the window in space. <laughs> So thank you for being with me today. I, I, I really enjoyed you all. I look forward to your questions. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.